Now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 9 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying in a series through Genesis called Gleanings Through the Book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of these guys coming up the aisle right now. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying for your convenience. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today and make a good friend of it. Also, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in our evening service, and currently studying uh, the book of Daniel, and uh, each of you are invited to that uh, this evening. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 18. Now, the sons of Noah, <clears throat> excuse me, who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and went backwards into the tent and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And, uh, and may Canaan be his servant. Now Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word as always this morning. We thank you and really marvel at it, the diversity of it, uh, the Pentateuch here that we're in the midst of, the Gospels, the book of Revelation, the major prophets, minor prophets, the epistles. We think about uh, the books of poetry and history and all of the different uh, forms in which you communicate your truth to us and how uh, we love not only your truth, but all the different ways that you speak it into our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to take the truths that are found in these verses and that you would once again lift them off of the printed page and give them a living, working, daily place in our relationship with you and in our relationship with our fellow man. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our text this morning, we have a post-flood account of the sin of Noah and the sin of his youngest son uh, by the name of Ham. And uh, this passage really provides us with 
valuable instruction on many, many levels, but we will focus this morning uh, specifically on how to and how not to uh, handle uh, or how, how to and how not to properly treat the flaws and the failures uh, of other people. In verses 20 and 21, we have uh, detailed for us the sin of Noah. And I think that to fully appreciate uh, what his failure here is intended to teach us, it's important that we be reminded of what a remarkable man Noah was. As we've already seen in previous studies, he was a just man. He was perfect in uh, his generations. He walked with God. He was obedient in all things. He was a man of great faith. And everywhere that you find Noah listed or mentioned in Scripture, he is presented to us as a remarkable man, and he is always commended to us as an example. And yet here in these verses, he uh, fails. And again, the account of, of his sin is given to us in verses 20 and 21. And following the flood, he became a farmer. And uh, not a wheat farmer, not a, 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 an almond farmer, uh, but he planted a vineyard, we're told in verse 20. And then in verse 21, we're told that he drank of the uh, wine that he had made and he became drunk as a result. So this tells us that Noah's sin, as it's recorded here, uh, occurred a number of years, at least several years following uh, the events of the flood in order to, uh, certainly depending upon environmental factors, it would have taken at least three to five years to plant a vineyard for to then produce enough fruit in which to then produce any kind of, uh, of wine uh, at all in a, in a sufficient amount. Bible scholars uh, debate whether this drunkenness on Noah's part was uh, intentional or whether it was unintentional. Uh, some contend that it was only after the flood that you would have had the resultant changes in the world's atmospheric condition uh, that fermentation of any kind would have occurred. And thus, when Noah made the wine after the flood, uh, he did not know that it would make him intoxicated. And in order to support this view, they'll point to the fact that Noah is not overtly condemned uh, in the passage at all, or really in any other passage in Scripture, for his drunkenness. And uh, they will point to the fact that it's inconceivable uh, that someone possessing the godly character, the godly history of Noah, would deliberately drink himself uh, drunk. Then there are others who contend that while the, cape, the, the vapor kind of canopy, canopy that encircled the world, the atmospheric uh, the uh, condition of the world prior to the flood, that certainly it did uh, filter out much of the harmful uh, radiation that comes from space that we have to deal with today. But they, they feel that there's no reason to doubt that fermentation as a kind of decay process that's involved in making wine, no reason to doubt that that didn't exist prior uh, to the flood. And, the, and to them, it's inconceivable that 
the pre-flood world knew nothing about uh, fermentation, knew nothing about wine or and intoxicating beverages, especially in the light of what we read in Genesis chapter 4, and that is the great advancements that mankind was making at that uh, point in time in history in terms of music, the art, animal husbandry, and uh, and then they believe that it's inconceivable that there wasn't fermentation and wine or alcoholic beverages prior to the fall in the light of Jesus mentioning that generation as a generation that was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And thus they view Noah's drunkenness as intentional. And I'll leave you to come to your own uh, conclusion but sufficient to understand that whether you conclude that it is, was intentional or it was unintentional, it, that has, will have absolutely no bearing uh, uh, upon uh, the lesson of the passage. It won't change that at all. We're told in verse 21 additionally that Noah drank wine to the point of uh, drunkenness. In other words, he passed out and, uh, and he lay in his tent uncovered. And so he might have uh, uh, drank uh, and become drunk and then began to feel the effects of the wine and, and that, that warm feeling that can sometimes accompany that. And so perhaps he took off his uh, robe as a result. Or it might just simply be that he, he passed out and uh, fell on his bed or fell upon the floor in, in such a way as to shift his clothing in a way that, that left him exposed. And, and of course, here we see the close connection that continues even to this day between uh, drunkenness and uh, uh, the uh, indecent kind of exposure and, uh, and the, the associated loss of uh, inhibitions and self-control that comes with drunkenness and the indecent exposure and the indecent behavior that uh, results from drunkenness and the overwhelming majority of sexual assaults and rapes and and so forth that occur on our university and college campuses all across the United States involve uh, drunkenness and a, a heavy use of, of alcohol. So the relationship is, is one that is historical. Now, whether intentional or unintentional, Noah did get drunk, which is a, a sin that is universally uh, condemned in the Scripture. And at the very least, uh, this uh, uh, incident in Noah's life, it did bring, uh, put a, a kind of an embarrassing blemish on his godly legacy. And I have no doubt that uh, whatever uh, was the intention related to it, uh, that it was something that he uh, regretted uh, immediately. Uh, lessons that we learn from the sin uh, of Noah as it's recorded for us, uh, because the account is put in the Bible in order that we would learn something from it. It certainly teaches us as Christians that if one chooses to drink wine, that it must, uh, we must use great care uh, so as to not become uh, drunk. And not only drunk as, uh, as we see in Noah here, not talking about passed out uh, drunk, but to come under the influence of wine 
at all. Uh, Paul famously uh, states concerning that for us as Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. In other words, it leads to a wasting, uh, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And every moment a person is under the influence of alcohol is a moment that we are not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the result can be anything from uh, embarrassing uh, to catastrophic, as we see here. The Bible does not condemn the drinking of wine, but it is important to realize that for every favorable mention of it in the Scripture, and there are many favorable mentions of wine as representative of joy and so forth, there are, is for every one of those several uh, passages that uh, provide us with a strong warning concerning the potential danger of it and to uh, partake of it with, with real diligence. This account in terms of Noah, it, it certainly teaches us that even those of us who are as serious as serious can be about our relationship with the Lord, our Christian life, our Christian witness, that we have to stay vigilant uh, concerning sin and concerning our Christian witness all the days uh, of our life, that sin is always looking for an opportunity to embarrass us, looking for an opportunity to mar our Christian witness. It is interesting how often these kind of things will happen, even in the most serious of Christians, following some kind of mountaintop experience with God, where God has used a person in a great way, say in leading someone to the Lord, or uh, whether in uh, leading in worship or teaching, or in all kinds of different areas that the Lord might use us to, to um, share the gospel with someone, provide a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a prophecy, however God might use us. And God used Noah in a phenomenal way in terms of uh, the ark and the flood and the building of the ark and providing uh, a way of salvation to mankind uh, through him and so forth. And, uh, and, and so often right after that kind of a use, it's very easy to let our guard down and uh, uh, later on in our life and become embarrassed by, uh, by as a result of having let our guard uh, down. It also teaches us to be especially careful not to lower. Uh, it, it, it reminds us here that the best of men, as the old saying goes, the best of men are men at best. And that is something that we constantly need to be reminded of, uh, not only for our own sakes, uh, but for the sakes of whoever we, for the sake of whoever we might uh, be inclined to put uh, up on a, a pedestal. All of us need to be reminded of this. Uh, for those of you who sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, uh, that uh, saying, uh, the best of men are men at best, it informs you that you cannot expect perfection of any human being. Uh, you cannot even expect perfection uh, of even uh, a Christian. And if you do, you will be disappointed. And you will be disappointed, and, it, and when you are disappointed, it will be your own fault. 
because you bring an expectation to Christians, to Christianity, uh, that even God does not bring uh, to his people in this life. No Christian, no child of God is perfect. Again, no matter how serious they are about their walk with the Lord, uh, no matter how serious they are about growing in their relationship uh, with the Lord, you have to make your decision uh, concerning whether you become a Christian or not, uh, not based supremely upon what you have seen or not seen in Christians at all, uh, but solely upon Jesus Christ Himself. He is the only one who has given to us in the Scripture and declared as He is in Revelation chapter 3 as the singular, the faithful and true witness. There is no other true and faithful witness of God the Father or of Christianity than Jesus Himself. You must come to your conclusions about Christianity based upon Him which may mean, depending on what your background is, that you have to work through an awful lot of baggage about what you've seen Christians be or not be in your life. But again, the best of men are men at best. And for those of us who are Christians, it teaches us to realize that we will never ever have a, a, any deep, meaningful relationship with any other person and, and including any other Christian in life without being exposed to some imperfection or imperfections in their lives and some area of their life where they will need to continue uh, to grow. I don't know where it comes from, but it comes from somewhere. And this expectation that we bring, even as a Christian, to other Christians to somehow expect perfection of other Christians and, uh, and to be shocked when we develop a, uh, a, a close personal relationship with them, the discovery that they are not yet perfect. They're not yet fully uh, sanctified and uh, Christ-like. And to bring that kind of an expectation of perfection to any relationship in life is not only grossly unfair uh, uh, of others, but it really, we set ourselves up to be stumbled by our own uh, ignorance revealed in expecting perfection from anyone or anything in this life uh, except from God himself. Now let's examine the, the greater sin of Ham. Uh, and it is important to realize Ham was the youngest of the three sons of Noah. That Ham is not a child. He's not a 10-year-old boy. He's not a 16-year-old uh, adolescent. He is a full-grown married man uh, with children. You notice in verse uh, 22 that Ham saw his father's nakedness. So for whatever reason, he entered into Noah's tent. He saw him passed out uh, drunk in the tent and uh, immodestly exposed as a result. Now, uh, the, the theories of what happened while uh, Ham 
uh, entered into the tent, what happened between him and his father, uh, all in an attempt to kind of explain the curse that Noah then put upon uh, Ham's youngest son, Canaan, in the latter part of, of the passage. Uh, the, the attempt to understand that uh, and, then, uh, and then use that to then draw conclusions about what happened between uh, Ham and Noah in his passed out state within the tent. They ranged very, very broadly among uh, commentators and, and attempting to explain the passage. Uh, some explain that because uh, uncovering someone's weak uh, uh, nakedness uh, as it's used here in this passage, when it's used elsewhere later in the law of Moses, it is used to describe uh, engaging in sexual relationships with another person. And so people, some people contend that uh, Ham uh, entered into the tent, he saw his father's nakedness, and that he then assaulted his father sexually in a homosexual uh, act. Now, the problem with that view, and, and it's a widely dispensed view, <clears throat> otherwise I wouldn't bring it up. I mean, it's so despicable in its own way. But the problem with that view is that, is that in this passage, Ham is not described as having uncovered his father's nakedness. Uh, we are plainly told that Noah uncovered his own nakedness. There is zero support within the passage for this fanciful idea that Ham somehow sexually assaulted uh, his, his father. And then there are others that because of, uh, of the, this, the prevailing use of this, uh, this phrase in the Old Testament, uncovering someone's nakedness in the Old Testament, uh, so often it would refer to someone engaging in a sexual relationship with uh, another uh, man's uh, wife. And that what occurred here is that Ham engaged in sexual intimacy with uh, Noah's wife and that Canaan uh, was the result. And again, all of this is in an attempt to try and understand the severity of Noah's uh, uh, condemnation that he puts upon Canaan uh, later in, in the passage when uh, the curse that he puts upon Cain and upon awakening. But there isn't the, the slightest hint uh, of, of such a thing in the passage at all. You think it can't get any worse in terms of what people believe about the passage. It does. You can cover your ears if you like to. It's a, uh, you, don't be over, over alarmed by me saying that. But the interpretation of what happened here gets even more bizarre uh, when uh, some Jewish rabbis taught uh, that uh, Ham, uh, when he saw his father in this condition, that he actually castrated Noah, uh, and uh, which would explain the fact that Noah only had three sons for the remainder uh, of his life. And now, all of you, I, I, I trust all of you are uh, with me on all of this. This is all the wildest 
uh, in most insane speculation related to the passage. All we are told in the passage is that he saw his father's uh, nakedness. It seems fairly straightforward uh, to, uh, to me. We're told in verse 22 that he then uh, exited the tent and he proceeded then to tell his two brothers outside what he had witnessed. And it would appear that uh, Ham uh, didn't just come out of the tent uh, to kind of humbly and discreetly inform his brothers, his older brothers, of their father's condition uh, in, in order to find some kind of a solution uh, to it, but that he declared boldly and openly and uh, probably even mockingly uh, of the condition of their father inside the tent. The Hebrew word uh, that is translated there, told, as it's in, in the passage, it communicates the idea of uh, saying something boldly, of saying something conspicuously, of, of, uh, of him broadcasting the news of his father's drunken condition and uh, nakedness. And, and the word even carries with it the idea of doing so uh, with delight. And thus, Ham's failure was not in seeing his father's nakedness, but apparently in how he uh, reported it. Frankly, there's no need uh, in terms of Ham and his uh, stumbling into this scene in his father's tent. There was no need uh, for anyone else to uh, know what he had seen. He could have just simply solved the issue by putting a cover over his father and, uh, and then secured the tent so no one else would uh, enter again and then left it alone without telling anyone. It ought to have been an incident that uh, Ham kept to himself for the rest of his life and that uh, proceeded to uh, die uh, with him. Now, in a total contrast to Ham, uh, we also have what is a, a, a very, very touching and very, very respectful treatment of their father on the part of Shem and Japheth. It's, it's recorded for us there in verse 23. They uh, backed into the tent. I mean, you can picture them making their way backwards through the opening uh, of the tent. They backed into the tent so as to not even see their father's condition. And they proceeded to then, uh, from that particular posture, to uh, lay a garment backwards uh, over him. They covered him, and then he le they left the tent. And not only sensitive to preserve their father's dignity, uh, but by choosing not to observe the scene themselves, but then they ensured by putting the garment over their father that no one else uh, would uh, either. And of course, this is a perfect example of Peter's call to us as Christians, First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, and above all things, have a fervent love one for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, a, uh, a perfect example of how to handle another person's sin or failure, he declared in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one 
in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. And we see these New Testament truths on full display in two of the sons, in Shem and, and Japheth. Just a beautiful respect for the dignity, for the reputation of their father. And uh, they, uh, we have no record here that they rebuked Ham in any way verbally, but they certainly rebuked Ham. Uh, by virtue of their actions. Now, uh, uh, allow me to read some additional verses uh, that condemn the actions of, of Ham and commend the actions of Shem and uh, Japheth. Well, uh, and in, in sharing this, I, these verses, I, I want to be careful uh, to also acknowledge that there are times when uh, certain actions of people should be and they must be reported to others. Uh, that certainly includes physical assault, uh, sexual abuse within a family. But I want you to understand we're not addressing that kind of thing this morning. Uh, Noah had uh, done uh, no deliberate wrong to uh, uh, another here. Uh, nor was he a danger to anyone else in, in what he had done here. This morning we're talking about how to handle the flaws and the failures uh, that each of us have uh, as, as human beings. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Also in the book of Proverbs, 16 verse 28, a perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 26, and the NIV puts it so well, uh, he writes, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Again, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 11, verse 13, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. And it is important for us to realize that there are secrets that we know about the flaws and the failures of other people that we should and we must uh, carry to our graves. They are never to be repeated to another person. In the same way that we hope those who have seen our flaws and our failures in the course of our attempt to grow in Christ-likeness and to become more like Him, that they would carry those things uh, to the grave as, as well. <clears throat> Some lessons that we learn from the sin of Ham and I want you to notice that while both Noah and Ham sinned, that Ham's sin is the greater uh, as it is dealt with in the passage. And it's important to realize that in the eyes of God, making public the sins of others can be a greater affront to God than even the original sin itself. And this is not only an affront and, and something that uh, hits God in the wrong way, but it even hits other people in, in the wrong way. Even in the eyes 
uh, of people to share uh, private, intimate details about uh, people. They leave that conversation with us and it causes them to see, look down upon us and they end up looking uh, more, more down upon us than they do uh, upon the person whose uh, privacy we have violated by uh, sharing uh, their, their sins and their failures. I think given how much God knows about each of us, And how careful God is not to broadcast our sins. How careful God is to keep our sin as quiet as he does. Think about what a scandal it must be in heaven uh, for heaven to witness us openly exposing then uh, the sins of others and to shame others. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 when he gave the uh, talking about how to handle a, a sin that has been committed against us. A- and he tells us that we are to go to the person, number one, one-on-one, and try and resolve the situation on that level. If it's unable to, to deal, uh, address it on that level and find resolution, to then introduce two or three more for the sake of establishing the facts of the case and, and then again with, with the idea of bringing it to a resolution. And only then would the sin be brought before the entire church and be made known to the church. But in the entire progression, we see the heart of God. Uh, we see how God handles uh, sin, how he handles our sin. Uh, he keeps it as small as it can possibly be and, and, uh, and uh, keeps it from being broadcast and, and, and resolving it on, on as private a level as, uh, as, as he can and only enlarging as, as is necessary. I, I personally believe that next to our unforgiveness of, of one another, which God is completely intolerant of in, in the light of how much he has forgiven each and every one of us as Christians. I think that the, the second greatest crime that we can commit against the, the character and the nature of God is to broadcast the sins of others in the light of how discreetly he handles our sins and our, uh, our flaws and, and our failures. And the passage teaches us to have a respect and a concern for the reputation uh, of others. And uh, all people, but certainly the, uh, including that of our family members, the reputation of parents, the reputation of husbands, wives, children, uh, brothers and sisters. And our culture has become so irreverent uh, in, in this uh, regard. And we can come to be fashioned by the culture around us and we think nothing of broadcasting uh, the failures of, of our parents to anyone and anyone uh, who will listen or uh, of our children or our husbands or our wives 
and, and to e- expose uh, intimate details, to expose their flaws, their, their, their failures to uh, anyone who will listen, because this is how the culture operates. And I think as a result of this conforming uh, pressure and, uh, 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 and power of the culture around us, it's good to come back to the Bible for uh, some sanity and instruction in this uh, regard. Uh, today, Ham's actions here in terms of how he treats his father uh, would be viewed as nothing in our culture. Uh, people would look at this and say, what is the big deal? It's, it's so common a practice uh, today that the tendency here would be to look at a passage like this and condemn God for making such a big deal of it rather than uh, condemning uh, Ham for his, his actions here. And later, God is going to make his mind very, very clear in this regard in the Ten Commandments and in the Law of Moses. Uh, the fifth commandment uh, in the law of Mo- in the, the the Ten Commandments says, "Honor your father and your mother." Uh, under the law of Moses, to insult one's parents uh, was deemed to be worthy of the penalty of death. Uh, I'm not advocating a return to this, though I've been tempted uh, in uh, uh, child rearing age, but. I am just saying that from the perspective of God, it is a very big deal to run down our parents for simply being imperfect human beings and then making their shortcomings known to others. And it isn't just a child toward a father in terms of the context that is here. It isn't just strictly uh, uh, that. But, but it is a big deal t- uh, for husbands to run down their wives, uh, for wives to run down their husbands, and, and parents to do so to their children without any kind of a concern for their reputation in the eyes uh, of others. And a wife or a husband can do this in such a way to a spouse that uh, then when finally the unsaved uh, husband finally comes to church, uh, nobody looks at him as they're being introduced to him and shaking hands to him. And, uh, you know, with a blank slate, they're thinking in their mind, ah, this is the rat I've heard so much about. And that's the kind of thing that can, can happen. And again, there is a whole world of things that each of us know about the people closest to us that must never be made uh, public. And of course, all of this is disappearing in the coarseness of our uh, culture. But we must not allow it to disappear from our lives uh, as Christians. It is one of the things that uh, has the potential to make us Uh, stand out very, very uh, strongly in a a wonderful contrast uh, against the culture and to be distinct in the world all around us. It really is a base mind and a loveless heart that thinks nothing of the reputation of others in broadcasting their sins and their flaws. But it's become so common 
in this uh, slanderous culture that we live in, and now so much social media to do uh, this with, so many venues with which to uh, do this to, to other people. Uh, the, the, this characteristic of Ham, again, has become so prevalent in our culture today and, and you look at everywhere within our culture, you almost have to stop and think, when did I uh, watch something in the form of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, entertainment? When is the last time I read a magazine article, uh, a news article? Uh, when was I exposed to uh, anything on the internet that was something that uh, spoke edifyingly? Uh, of other people. Uh, I, I, I mean, it happens, but it's such a, a small minority of what is communicated today. Uh, the overwhelming majority of our culture takes such delight in exposing the sins uh, of people and then shaming them uh, over their sin. You, and, and it reflects very badly upon the culture. Uh, think about here with Ham. Uh, this son uh, shamed and humiliated his father in this way. One of the greatest men to have ever lived in human history by broadcasting the news of the sole recorded failure that we have in his life in the Scriptures. Do you think about what Ham owed to uh, his father? what he owed to the goodness of his father, the righteousness of his father, the godliness of his father, and what a terrible way uh, in which to repay him. And you ask yourself, is Ham mentioned with uh, Daniel and Job uh, in the book of Ezekiel as his father Noah was? Is Ham mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great New Testament hall of faith as his father is? Do we have any record that the name of Ham ever came off of the, the lips of uh, Jesus? Did he ever commend Ham in the way that he mentioned and uh, commended uh, uh, Noah? No, nowhere in the scriptures. And, and candidly, Ham was a comparative nothing and nobody compared to his father. He had accomplished nothing on his own. He had made no name for himself in his own right. And yet he saw fit to slander someone who was many times the man that he was without taking any of that into account. It might be one thing if this kind of behavior characterized Noah's life, but it didn't. And it's so important that we do not define people by the single worst thing they have ever said or ever done in their lives, but to rather uh, look, at their, uh, look at them and define them on the basis of their life as a whole. I think about a, a, a great church leader who uh, went to heaven, uh, who I have the highest esteem for, who God used to impact the entire world, 
And he was no sooner dead uh, than people were picking at not one or two sins that they could find in his life, but personality traits that they didn't particularly care for in an attempt to bring him down. And this failure that we have within the body of Christ and certainly within the culture to just take one failure in a person's life and, or perceived failure and then to uh, destroy them with a, a, a turning a completely blind eye to the totality of, of their life. And it is such an unfair thing to do. And, and yet it is so common. Uh, I, I, it, 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 this is one of the problems with the cancel culture that we have had to endure now for the last 10 years or so in our culture. Those who try to destroy the careers of celebrities uh, solely on the basis of some wrong uh, that they have determined the, the person has done in their eyes. And uh, sometimes because of things a person has said years before, uh, something a person has said or done uh, even decades before that might have been inappropriate, uh, and even for things that people have said years earlier and apologized for. Uh, and yet, despite all of that, there's still the attempt to destroy them uh, on the basis of this single thing without taking uh, into account the larger picture of their work, the larger picture of who they are as a person, and without giving any weight to the fact that now they might not even remotely, now months and years, even weeks later, be the same person that they once were given the fact that people grow in uh, the course of their life, most do, and who in the world doesn't have things uh, in our past that we would do differently or we would say differently if we were the person then that we are now. And this defining of people on the basis of the worst thing they've ever said or done and the, the continual repeating of it it absolutely abounds in politics as well. And is the, this the standard today that we will demand of people? Is this the new standard that we have for one another? The standard of perfection? No one gets to make a single mistake in the course of their life and learn from it and change and become a better person as a result of it? I'll tell you, this is a very insane and dangerous moment in American cultural uh, history. And in today's cultural environment, every mention of Noah would be erased from the Bible. And all anyone would ever be taught about Noah, or all anyone would ever uh, know about Noah would be the one night he got drunk and nothing would be made known of his remarkable life. How unbalanced is that? How criminally unfair is that? And thankfully, the God of the Bible is nothing like this in his dealing with people. And all of this is so selective 
and hypocritical, those who consider themselves to be a gift to mankind because they can find a flaw in an otherwise commendable life, and who would themselves wilt if their lives came under the same scrutiny that they put other lives under. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And each of us has plenty of reason to be gracious in our treatment of other people in this regard. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Jesus speaks on this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brethren, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And finally, I think it's important to realize that just because what is being said is true about another person, or that what we are sharing about another person has now become common knowledge within the culture, or even within a church, uh, 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 that it's already become widely broadcast, it does not mean that we are then free to share it. And somebody can say, well, it's true. But well, it's true is not the standard for what is lawful for us to share with others about others. Because something can be absolutely true and still be slander. It can be absolutely true and still see, be seen in the eyes of God as uh, gossip, as, Ham's, uh, as Ham demonstrates for us here. Now, the response of Noah, and I'll be literally 40 seconds on this, uh, because this is the wonderful thing about do a gl- doing a gleanings. I don't have to exhaust everything in the passage. But the response of Noah in terms of his, his curse upon uh, Canaan, You notice in verses 24 to 27, when Noah woke up, he was probably very curious uh, about the garment that had been placed over him and probably uh, asked questions associated with it. He's uh, informed, evidently, of of all of these events, and his response was to pronounce a curse on Ham's uh, youngest son, Canaan. Uh, who will be the, the Canaanites, will ultimately descend from uh, this youngest son. And, uh, and, and, and here Noah pronounced a, a curse upon Canaan and his descendants, and then a blessing upon Shem and, and Japheth and their descendants. And essentially what is happening here, Noah just declares that the character of each of these sons, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, as it's revealed in this incident, that it would be passed on uh, to their descendants. 
And uh, so it happened, as you continue to read the record uh, through the book of uh, Genesis. And thus we have what I think is a sober realization that who we make our model in all of this, whether we make Ham our model or we make Shem and Japheth our model, it will be noted by our children and it will be learned by our children and ultimately it will come to mark their life for better or for worse. I don't know about you, but I, I think this is a pretty strong passage, wouldn't you say, this morning? But I, I tell you, I never ever... I, I am always eager to hear a sermon or to be reminded of things in the Scripture that help me to stop and reassess how I am handling this unruly member <laughs> in my life called uh, the tongue. And, uh, and so I know you feel the same way uh, as well. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you have been created for and that uh, not only uh, this life, but eternity hangs in the balance and in balance in terms of what you do with His Son. Come and be a Christian. Come become a Christian, a follower uh, of Jesus Christ this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. Father, thank you for this passage and this little section of Scripture that speaks um, something that is so important uh, for us to hear uh, throughout all of the ages, Lord, uh, since you put it in your book under Moses, but how much more in the coarseness and the, the vileness and the, the disrespect of the culture that we live in, Lord. We pray that this would, time in your word would burn away anything in our lives that we have settled into that looks like ham and that it would affirm in our lives everything, Lord, that looks like Shem and Japheth. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.